Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, back to New Books in Education. This is Ryan Allen, your host, and I'm excited today to bring us uh, Dr. Mark Carnes and his new book, uh, Minds on Fire, How Role Immersion Games Transform College. And this is from Harvard University. All right, welcome, everyone, back to New Books in Education. This is Ryan Allen, your host, and I'm excited today to bring us uh, Dr. Mark Carnes and his new book, uh, Minds on Fire, How Role Immersion Games Transform College. And this is from Harvard University Press, published in 2014. And I'm excited for this book because uh, it's just a very interesting aspect that you don't really see a lot in higher education, You know, something in the classroom that people can really uh, look at and change and, and sort of an interesting aspect that uh, I can reflect in my own life that which we'll talk about here here in a bit and so I'm excited to bring on uh, Mark to let you guys know what what this role playing is and, and what's uh, what this book is all about and how to really get students maybe excited for the classroom again or ever if, if that's the case so uh, Mark thank you uh, for, for joining me today Look, thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Absolutely. And so if you could just maybe give us a a brief bio or how you got into sort of uh, higher education or or teaching. Well, let me tell you about how this uh, uh, book came about and how this entire project came about. The project is called Reacting to the Past. And reacting students play complex games set in the past, taking on roles informed by classic texts. This is a role-playing game students play. Uh, It has nothing to do with computers or online uh, applications or videos. It's all classroom-based. Now, I was a regular history professor, and this project had its origin in a particular moment. And this was about 20 years ago. I was a uh, uh, tenured professor at Columbia chair of the department. I'd had a very successful book and I knew the material and uh, uh, I had superb students at Barnard College and the material were the classic texts of the human imagination. So I had all the ingredients for a terrific class. Great students, teacher who knew what he was doing and superb material and it was in a discussion class. And yet, when we discussed the texts, I was bored, the students were bored, Mm -hmm. and this was the ideal teaching and learning situation. What was wrong? I invited a student, in fact, I invited all the students in that class, after it was over, to meet with me individually to figure out how did this learning situation, which was perfect, end up being bored. Mm -hmm. And most of the students eventually met with me. I asked each of them, 
what was wrong with the class. Several of them said it was their favorite class. When the third student said this to me, I said, how can that be? I was bored. You were bored. You could feel the boredom in the classroom. The student looked up at my bookshelf as if she were going to make a choice, and she said, well, yes, but all classes are sort of boring. Mm -hmm. Yours was less boring than most. And so that led to my wondering, what can we do to make the classroom different? And that led the next year I began this process of uh, transforming these discussions into debates. And then several of the students in one class took the debates, took charge of it, took hold of the class, and led it into an entirely different direction. And that evolved with the help of hundreds of scholars mm -hmm. and teachers into the React in the Past pedagogy. And this book is basically trying to figure out why this learning platform of these, these student-run games in the classroom mm -hmm. is so powerful. Sure. Yeah, I think just reflecting on, on my own sort of experience, I've never really done reacting in university life, but I do remember when I was... Uh, in uh, even element or junior high and I did sort of a mock trial and I can still remember everything about that mock trial and I was in eighth grade and so and not, but I didn't really reflect on it until I started reading this book about maybe how much of an impact that actually had on me I was like the one of the lead lawyers and the, the teacher mm -hmm. was like I want you to be the lead lawyer on, on this case and we, we won the case, and, and I remember even, like, specific mistakes that happened that I did. I'm like, oh, I can't believe that. And this was, you know what, like 15, 20 years ago for me, however long it was. Right. I've had this conversation with professors maybe 80 or 90 times. And the conversation goes like this. After I've given a talk or they've been part of a workshop, they say, I did something like this, or I experienced something like this. Or I did a version like this. Mm -hmm. And I then ask, how did it go? And their response is like yours. It was this, this powerful, deep learning experience. And then the conversation is, but I never did something mm -hmm. as elaborate as this. Month-long games based on thousands of pages of materials. Right. Um, this experience that you had in eighth grade or in fourth grade or in, in uh, a high school class is a strong learning experience. When you turn this role-playing moment into a role immersion game lasting a month, the pedagogical and the learning dividends are intensely more powerful. So you had a good experience. This was a good active learning experience. When you push that much further, mm -hmm. which is what Reacting the Past does, something even more powerful goes on. And you've got, you got an inkling of it but you haven't sure. been there, Absolutely. but you can imagine. Sure, sure. And I guess kind of connecting to that, you've already sort of mentioned that, you know, this isn't computer games. This is actually creating sort of this world for you. Uh, but today in, in sort of higher education, in uh, sort of the college life, if you will, uh, you do sort of describe uh, what you call sub subversive play. And so how does this, or what is subversive play, and how does that really connect to what you're doing in the classroom? Yeah, well, my question, the, the problem I had was why 
do students buy into this, mm-hmm. and why does it, why is it so powerful? Why do they why do they speak of how uh, how it is as as changed them fundamentally? How they can't forget things ten years afterwards? How how uh, how deeply it has affected them, and how students are so often skeptical of playing these idiot games in college classes. Right. And then quickly they get wrapped up in them. Okay, so so why is why does their skepticism evaporate so quickly? What is the power of this? And what I realized was that they're responding to these games in ways that they respond to their other powerful play forms. Their 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 uh uh, fraternity experiences, their their responses to the online games, and I realized then that these students' imaginations and their motivations are tied up in these experiences, these social networks, and these social networks that students live in, whether it's their uh, responses as fans to intercollegiate athletics and football, to their online games, to World of Warcraft, to their Facebook mm-hmm. uh, uh, social network competitions. The worlds that stood to fraternity initiations and hazings, all the students' worlds that excite their imaginations and their passions involve social competition. They also involve taking on new identities, getting out of being who you are now and becoming someone else, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be uh, some warrior in World of Warcraft or uh, uh, a brother in a fraternity or a sister in a sorority. You have a new identity that's liberating, it's exciting. You're involved in these social competitions. That's also part of where where all people are at at all times. Uh, social competition is, is where it's at. And when you take on a new identity, an alternative identity, and you get involved in social competitions, you're also changing things. You are subverting your regular identity. You're subverting conventional beliefs, if only in a play mode. Mm-hmm. So subversive play embodies these these elements: uh, uh, competition, taking on new exploratory identities, and in so doing, subverting your sense of who you are, your sense of the social hierarchies and conventional statuses. Mm-hmm. So, what I say is that these games do the same thing. They involve students in these competitions or competing with their peers and these teams. They're taking on new identities, whether as revolutionaries in France or uh, uh, theologians in, in, in uh, the Holy Office in Rome in the 1630s or Confucian scholars in the Ming Dynasty. They're taking on these new weird identities. They're competing. Right. And in so doing, they're subverting their old conventions and beliefs and sense of self. Sure. And that's what makes them pow- these experiences powerful so quickly. Or so I argue in the book. Sure, absolutely. And you kind of uh, are going against maybe the conventional uh, norm in education. You know, you, you, you kind of talk about uh, Dewey. Uh, you talk about some of the old classic uh, Greek and Roman philosophers for, uh, of education. So can you maybe kind of talk about you know, what, what is going on in the classroom? What, what exactly does this game look like? Uh, and why would these sort of uh, uh, thinkers in education uh, disparage it, maybe not knowing exactly what it looks like? Well, they've got, I mean, beginning with Plato through Rousseau, through Dewey, through uh, Eric Erickson, they've got a clear idea 
of the power of this sort of imaginative play, and they're nervous about it. So what happens in a reacting classroom is this. You get a game book. Um, the game book can be several hundred pages long, and it lists the rules, and it also set up the historical context and uh, uh, provide various texts to help back it up. And then you'll be reading additional texts. Um, so for the game set in... France in 1791, you'll read the game book with the rules. You'll also be reading uh, Rousseau's discourse, first discourse, and also um, the social contract. You'll also be reading parts, uh, parts of Burke's reflections on the revolution in France. So, so you've, you're, you're getting, you're learning about the sort of the context and the intellectual context that you'll be inhabiting. Then you get your role. And your role in the French Revolution game will be 20, 25 pages of material telling you what you have to accomplish, what you think, why you think it, uh, what particular powers you may have that others may not know about. There may be some secrets pertaining to you that the world may not know about, but you have to accomplish. You'll then uh, gravitate to others in your faction, and then you will start strategizing with your faction. Maybe you're a Jacobin, maybe you're a conservative, maybe you're a member of the Fouillon constitutional monarchist. Whatever your faction is, you'll then work together to, to strategize and advance your ideas. And the French Revolution game takes place mostly in, mostly in the National Assembly in France. The games then are constituted as the National Assembly. Uh, the, a classmate who is president of the assembly will run the class, run the debates, the instructor sits in the back as the game master, intervening every now and then to when there is a rule dispute. Every now and then things may happen that require an eye roll. Uh, it's, I'm not going to reveal all the sort of complexities sure. and, and, and secret elements, but this process then unfolds, as does the French Revolution, driven by the historical dynamics that are embedded in the roles and the rules and secret elements to the game, but which students have the capacity to rework. They are not reenacting the French Revolution. They're hashing it out, fighting out the ideas, and it may unfold in a different way from this. Sure. Now, where, where, the, where classic educational philosophers have problem with this is they all are following Plato's model. Plato says there is a danger in leaving yourself. The reason we don't want to have poets and playwrights is that they entice you into imagining you're someone else. You've, so you have, the, in, in ancient Athens, you've got these shepherds and shoemakers who think they're statesmen. And they think they're heroes because they go to the theater and they imagine that they're gods and heroes and warriors. And so when they then take these imaginative identities into the political process, this crazy Athenian democratic process where 6,000 shoemakers and shepherds decide policy. And then they go to the courts. 500 jurors decide the guilt or innocence of Socrates. What do they know of justice? Well, they know about anything. They don't know anything except they're filled with these imaginary powers. And that's the danger. They think that because they can imagine themselves to be heroes and gods, they are. Plato says, no, stick to what you know, and what you know should be your work, your occupation. Uh, avoid these imaginative fictions. Rousseau, in his classic education treatise, says, 
avoid these imaginative worlds because they get you out of being your own authentic self. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's different in some ways from Plato, but also on this issue, do not go to imaginative play, uh, especially of a competitive sort. He wants, he wants Emil, his student, to be alone in the, in, in, with the tutor. Mm-hmm. No social competition, no play. Dewey says the same thing. We want you to have real rooted play that connects to the real world. Girls should play with brooms and boys can, can do similar things that lead to the workplace. If you stay into the, ch- in the child's realm of fantasy and roughhouse and competition, you'll never make it to the workaday world. So, and I could make the same point about Eric Erickson sure. and, and others. Right. They're all following in an historical tradition, a philosophical tradition, which makes perfect sense and which is dead wrong which is that play is okay for young people, imaginative fantasy play with social competition, what I call subversive play worlds. It's okay for young people. By the time you're going to college, you should be working. College should replicate the processes of work. It should not be about play. It should not be about fantasy. It should be about working in the real world, just as Plato said and the others have referred. The problem is, college students, like everybody else, is drawn to these imaginative worlds of social competition. And so instead of college students working like we want them to, their minds are in these other places that, that corporations and social media of the internet have gobbled up. Mm-hmm. So that's that. That's sure. that's my tension with the whole uh, sure. educational enterprise. Right. Which you know we're, we're sitting here talking about you know, uh, the problems with Dewey in Teachers College at Columbia University, but that's okay. No, 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 that's I, all right. I walked in the <laughs> door, and Dewey says the way of changing society. And reforming societies through education, but the change he wants to make is to help push children into a new progressive world of social cooperation and social order. Dewey's favorite author is Plato. How can Dewey, this progressive reformer who's trying to change society, have as his favorite author uh, uh, Plato Socrates, who wants to build a society that's rooted because Dewey's social order is a progressive order where everyone fits in a cooperative society, um, attuned to work and social order, which is different from the dog eat dog ethos of uh, capitalist sure. Gilded Age. Uh, right. But what he's doing, and what other educators are doing, is replicating a model of play. This proponent of play, John Dewey, wants to change play and turn it to play that isn't any fun. Mm-hmm. Which is why educators keep saying, we're following the Dewey model, and yet the classroom isn't changed. Why? Well, because his play isn't any fun. Right. It's not subversive, but it's not subversive because he is fearful mm-hmm. of social competition. He's fearful of fantasy. He wants to get rid of it. That's to say, he wants a play that isn't any fun. Right. Uh, I mean, I think connecting to that, you uh, you talk about how, or at least maybe it was a quote from one of the students who, you know, first hearing about how this is, you know, how this works, kind of a confused question. So the students are in the classroom, or some something along those lines. And so, how are the students, the class, and uh, how do you get their students, or how do they embrace reading just 
hundreds of pages sometimes and, and really embracing these roles? Or how, how have you found these students to do this? There is a, uh, uh, about a decade ago, the Confidential Guide to Courses at Smith College said, reacting looks like it would be fun and easy but it tricks you into doing more work than all of your other classes combined. And the way it tricks you is that it creates this world which is student-run, that is to say that the instructor sitting at the back uh, grading the performances, but especially grading the papers on which all of the performances are based. People are writing essays, advancing their views, seeking to accomplish things, to persuade their peers. Um, so the game master is sort of sitting in the back Grading papers, providing guidance to factions outside of class, providing email guidance, helping them with the ideas. But the whole dynamic is run by the students. As I gave an example of the, the French Revolution, they are debating, they are solving the problems, they are managing the classroom all on their own. But, but because you have these motiv element, motivational elements of subversive play, of social competition, our group just got clobbered by the Jacobins. We were slaughtered in the debate. Someone did a lousy job of their presentation. Their paper was weak and the idea is poor. The other side ripped it apart. We lost. We're in trouble now. This binds them together. They work harder. The person who slept off now feels, like they feels badly. They work harder. There's this social pressure that drives them forward, just as it's social pressure that helps drive students forward and all their... Uh, they're non-academic things. It's these social pressures that pushes them forward. This pushes them into the game. Also, the fantasy of these new roles is seductive. It's fun to be someone other than yourself. And when this other person is someone who lives with big ideas. The Jacobins are feeding off of Rousseau's social contract. You start reading the social contract, and you see this is text. It's not an academic text. It's, it, it's the blueprint for a whole new society that makes sense from the Jacobin perspective, that solves the problems of France that you're now inhabiting. These two things, this imaginative identity, which is so much more powerful than their... their World of Warcraft identity because it's built not only on the sort of reality of this real human situation, but these powerful texts that now make sense, that explain the world, that show that the other side is wrong and why they're wrong, why they're stupid and why they're philosophically uh, uh, regressive. You have this intellectual heft. You're drawn into the materials to make your arguments, but also because this world makes more and more sense to you. And you get seduced by the, the thrill of it, the competition, the imaginative freedom it gives you, and also this sense that you're not acting in the normal way. You're subverting a whole bunch of things. You're running the class, not the professor. Right. You have power. You're a leader of the French Revolution. You're not a student. And plus, you're coming to class, doing crazy things, exciting things, where your peers are sitting in the back of the room, taking notes, playing Angry Birds, or texting. Right. Okay? Absolutely. And it's all very subversive. Mm -hmm. So those are the elements that cause students to work harder without being aware of it. Sure. How about... Uh if you can tell me about sort of uh, challenging the narrative that students have maybe in their, in their own life. For instance, you, you talk about sort of a Muslim who had to take on a role of, of a Zionist and then vice versa. It was a 
Jewish, uh, a Jewish guy who had to take on the role of, uh, I guess, a Palestinian. Palestinian yeah. uh, and then I think maybe you had another one, example of a, a very devout uh, Christian, I can't remember, remember the uh, sect, but she, she sort of was very, had very difficulties of taking on a role that, that she was assigned. So how, how does that work and how do people overcome that? Well, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a real challenge. What happens when uh, uh, you are a, a strong Zionist and you're given a role in 1936 as an Arab nationalist? Um, what, what this student said was that he was good at compartmentalizing his identities, that he played this role as an Arab nationalist, and it didn't, it didn't, uh, it existed alongside his strong Zionist beliefs. But as the game reached uh, deeper and deeper, uh, he internalized it in an important way. What I think happens in those cases is that the students end up having a deep conversation, that they understand positions that are antithetical to their their traditional self. And these two selves chat with each other and lead to some very soul-searching and important uh, conversations. Sometimes students find it just very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. And and particularly when they then speak with, uh, with parents or religious leaders and religious leaders, someone says, are you forgetting who you are? Part of learning is, and this is the real challenge of all educators, which is how do you learn something important? The real learning is the learning that goes into your core and changes who you are, not just with the content in your head. The real learning changes who you are. But if you say, myself cannot be changed, then how do you learn anything? And if learning is just acquisition of content, what the hell is the purpose of a teacher when you can go to Wikipedia or something else? Okay. Sure. So if we say learning is giving out content, there's not much role of a teacher. If you say learning is changing who you are, then you've got a problem. How do you change who someone is without coming across as a preacher and saying, you should support this cause. Students, don't be so benighted. Abandoned. What reacting does is doesn't have the instructor telling you what to believe, but it puts you in this context where you and your peers are working these things out, debating them, challenging them. Sometimes it's unsettling, and there's no doubt about that. Sometimes the whole process can be uh, emotionally fraught. Sometimes sure. students cry. Sure. And I think you mentioned some of those stories in here, certainly. Uh, how about for, I think you asked this question, isn't, and, and it's definitely related. Uh, I think you asked, did you, to the students, uh, do you think you were brainwashed right. in this case? What, what was sort of the, the reaction to that question or that idea? Well, there, the students in the book and, and in conversations are nearly all, most students go into the experience thinking, they haven't played a racking game before, thinking it's stupid. Uh, They will humor their instructor, or they've heard from other students that it may seem stupid, but it's really neat, give it a try. Or they'll hear from other students, 
that be careful because you'll end up doing much more work and you're, you, you, you may not be able to keep up your social life or whatever. So, so, so there's this real skepticism of students, but, but nearly always, or very, very often, they get sucked into it. And so there is this question, how did I get sucked into this so readily? Um, I, I think it's just the same way that you get sucked into Grand Theft Auto mm. or Facebook. It's the same sort of motivational elements. Only these elements, whereas in Grand Theft Auto, you're sucked into being a homicidal, cop-killing uh, 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 maniac, and you've let this sort of subversive world exist and you sort of laugh at it. Reacting, you were in these worlds that really existed are informed by big and powerful texts. And so you've got rattling through your brain these crazy identities, but these crazy identities carry with them lots of historical knowledge and big ideas. And I think that, that though this can all be unsettling and emotionally uh, complex, it is also intellectually very deep. Sure. Which is what we as educators do, trying to change how people think in some powerful way. Right, right, absolutely. So uh, I think one of my favorite chapters in here, I think connects to this as well, is potentially, you know, that maybe the educators aren't changing, but the students, you've noticed, and I think we've seen this in a lot of different books and articles that came out recently, the students have changed. And uh, you, you quite describe it well with sort of, you know, not wanting to risk a grade or doing, you know, staying in the dorms or playing video games. How do, how do you feel like the students have changed uh, over time and maybe uh, for better or for worse uh, connecting to, to these, um, this, this reacting uh, exercise? I'm an historian uh, and the book has, has some strong historical components. Um, part of my argument is that Students have always existed in subversive play worlds of their own devising. So that's to say, there are two histories of higher education. The one is the history that we all read about, the, the, the history of the presidents, the buildings, the curriculum, the curriculum transformation, the hiring of better scholars during the 19th century, replacing the old pedants of yesteryear. All these are the narratives that you read in your histories of higher education. But the other history of higher education is that students have always lived in these player worlds and spent much of their, expended most of their mental and imaginative energies in these player worlds, in the debating in the societies of the uh, literary societies of the 1840s and 50s, and fraternities in the last half sure. of the 19th century. And I don't think it's much different in, in World of Warcraft and Facebook and the fraternities and sororities today. Um, sure. I think students imaginations and their energies are often expended in these worlds rather than the academic world. So I don't see much change there. Okay. I do see a little bit of a change. It seems to me, and some, some, some scholars have, have supported this. One is I think that, that students are increasingly wary and nervous about social interaction, that they're mm -hmm. living more within online worlds, which makes the whole experience of, of class interactions, of talking, of meeting people, of speaking on the phone, mm. of, of being a salesman in a store and approaching a customer, all of these sort of social interactions, of walking down the street and saying hi to people, 
This was something that was governed by society, social roles. You tip your hat, you say this, uh, you approach women differently from men, all these sort of things. All these social conventions have been lost as people go around the world with, 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 with electronic media in there. So there's a difficulty, I think, of the younger generations in connecting with people, um, living online in ways that they connect that way, but they can't connect in, in social ways. Mm-hmm. The reacting class is is a social interaction, and I think this helps often bridge this sort of uh, how do we communicate when we're not online. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this in-person, this embodied communication is important. We live in our bodies. Sure. Our bodies express our sexuality, our mortality. All of these things are po- important parts of our interactions. Right. And when we live only online, our conversations, our interactions become uh, abstract and often cruel because there's no, we, see, we don't see the tears of our snarky, nasty comments. Right. We don't see the pain. We're not worried about getting slugged in the face. All this sort of uh, humanness we lose online. Think that that as educators are increasingly looking towards online solutions, we lose a lot in the classroom, which is why I think academics at all levels need to do more to make the classroom interactive. Right. We, we now have studies, and, and it's often the online the, the the online providers say we've got data that shows that students interact more when they live thousands of miles apart from each other and they have internet ch- to chat rooms than they do when they're sitting next to each other mm. in classrooms and in higher education. Right. We've got more interactive data online than when they're sitting next to each other. Yeah. That's because the classrooms don't exploit the, the, the possibilities of interactions. Mm. Reacting, reacting gives a model. I mean, there, you'll learn in uh, Teachers College provides all sorts of active learning strategies. Sure. Reacting is an organic strategy where you don't the instructor doesn't do anything other than set the game up, mm-hmm. and then the game is driven forward on its own momentum. So it's it, it has these interactions, but not in a, a, a in a less artificial way. Than many of the um, unit projects right. that, that occupy thirty minutes of a class. Sure, and I, I think I like one section of the book you talk about how you. How you feel like the classroom should be more resemble like World of Warcraft or something like that inside the classroom. I think that's a, a, maybe a good uh, sort of goal to, to try to achieve or something. That's right. I mean, what makes these, which which makes any game, and and, and uh, the designers of online games have these these feedback systems that are tremendous. They change something. They analyze this new component of their online game. You know, in thirty minutes. Whether it's picking up just based on this uh, on the response of the users, um, what 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 reacting does is it takes these elements of social competition, of fantasy, of subversion mm-hmm. that are powerful and puts them together in a in a uh, in, in a way that works. Right. Okay. So maybe jumping back a bit. So you you kind of talk about throughout the book like the gentleman seat and how uh, you know. Nowadays, there are students who just think sh- simply showing up to class, they now deserve a B. Uh, so uh, how, how does reacting maybe address that sort of issue where people say, well, I don't, I don't want to take that class because it's hard or something like that. How, does, how can we address that issue or, or is that uh, 
still out there to, to, to be figured oh, it, out. You're, it's still out there. It's absolutely out there. And the best way to do it is that some colleges, uh, uh, reacting is a required course. It's a required general mm-hmm. education course. So you don't have any choice. And then where that's been the case, then we have places where, where students, you're building a class where it's had the same texts and games. So there's this familiarity. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also learning speaking and writing and communication skills and critical thinking skills of a, of a deep character. So the best way to do it is to have reacting as a required gen ed course. And gen ed, general education is this sort of sick man of higher education. It's no one can figure out what, what to do with it. Reacting is a good solution. Honors colleges often choose reacting as a signature pedagogy. Everyone in the honors college uh, will take reacting course. And they'll play two or three games in a course. They'll have to take several reacting courses. Um, so that is an issue where reacting is an elective. Often students, when they learn, they come to class, they think it's going to be like a regular class because they've heard that it's different or they haven't heard it. Um, but then suddenly it sinks in that they're not going to be able to sit in the back of the room and take notes. Right. And then they learn they're going to be speaking in a contentious way. And some often in elective classes, students say, I'm getting out of here. Mm-hmm. So it is a problem. Right. On the other hand, it, when an instructor is taught reacting for several years, there's a buzz around campus. Sure. It's rare the first reacting instructor at a campus nearly always gets there's things start, start, start percolating. Something strange is going on in this class. It's interesting. There'll be an article in the, the campus paper, the instructor will win the teaching award because suddenly you've got all these excited students. And there'll be a buzz around the class. So after the first year or two, Reacting classes have a buzz about them, which tends to draw students even into elective courses. Sure. But at the outset, the conservatism of the students, which is profound, mm. faculty are conservative, students are even more conservative. They know how to do, how they know how to get by in college. Uh, they sit in the back. They know which courses to take. They know how to handle it all. You know, just varying degrees of success. Right. And they'll get their 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 B or better. Um, reacting destabilizes that all and scares them. Sure. So it is a problem. It's a challenge. But there's a countervailing element after the first year, which is there's this buzz on campus that something strange and interesting is going on in this classroom. Outweighs the maybe. The, right. the apprehension potential. Right, right. So you mentioned uh, general ed already and how it's really nice for general ed. You have a chapter in here about sort of how maybe sciences could could take on this role. Can you maybe describe that maybe where people wouldn't really see it as a match? But uh, it, yeah, one of our one of the questions we and when I say we that this is this is a project of they're probably eight or nine hundred faculty worldwide who teach with reacting games. And there are core probably 250 who are involved in the design of games and spreading the um, pedagogy. But about eight or nine years ago, we were wondering, can you have reacting games that involve science? As old group began to design games in the history of science, and, and the, the game that I was involved with was the trial of Galileo, which is how can you have students arguing that the earth doesn't move? Well, we, f- we realized that the, the argument for why the earth doesn't move was propounded by Aristotle, lasted for 2,000 years because it is just so brilliant and persuasive. 
And when you recreate the game and you put it in Rome in in the early 1600s when the Holy Office is is trying to decide, does the earth move? Is the literal interpretation of the Bible perhaps wrong? Because if it is, you don't want the Catholic Church to be against the the real truth. So maybe the understanding of the Bible is 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 difficult, ways that mortals don't can't figure out. So the Catholic Church has good mathematicians and philosophers trying to solve this problem. And when you look at Aristotle, the argument is compelling that the earth doesn't move. It's just a series of deductions and observations and mathematical principles that are irrefutable, which is why it lasts two thousand years. So when you play this game and you give some students that give them the Aristotelian model, then you fold in Galileo's smart uh, uh, improvement of Copernicus's argument, you have this delicious debate that is that is that, that where the conservatives usually win because Aristotle is more powerful given the knowledge set of the sixteen uh, hundred. So we realized that that you can have games set. Uh, it, dealing with, with scientific texts, Aristotle, Galileo's texts, which also illuminating the problems of, of how scientific ideas are shaped by society and then how these scientific ideas sh- themselves shape society. There's another great game uh, on Darwin's origin of species. Does Darwin's origin, should he win the Copley Medal of the Royal Society in 1864? Is this great science? as defined by Francis Bacon, based on the inductive method, you get data, you build up your data, and your argument comes from it. Is this good science in the Baconian sense, which the Royal Society says is our Bible of scientific method, or is Darwin, particularly as Origin of Species, is it just brilliant guesswork? So this is the debate of that moment, but it also leads students into this debate, what is science? Is it inductive? Is it is it imaginative guesswork? Right. Oh, what are the facts of the origin of species? And so you have this 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 terrific game on the philosophy and the substance of science, evolutionary science. But the game also percolates through issues of of, of social Darwinism, the role of women, of slaves, of racial relations in nineteenth century England. So you've got this lovely game that's about science, scientific method, the role of science in society, but also how scientific ideas change society and how society itself um, impinges on Darwinian ideas. So the idea is that if students were to take a course where they're playing the Galileo game and then the Darwin game, maybe another game on uh, acid rain in Europe in the 1970s, they would learn they have exposure in a general education problem. They have exposure to foundational ideas in motion theory in Galileo, in astronomy in the Galileo game, in evolutionary biology and paleontology in the Darwin game, in uh, basic chemistry in the acid rain game, uh, environmental science in that game. So you'd be exposed to a whole bunch of scientific traditions, but you'd also be exposed to different moments where the intersection of science and political and social arrangements are contested and complicated. And students taking this sort of a class would understand why they should have a general education class in science, that there is this important fusion of scientific ideas and science and social uh, institutions and political institutions. The two are conjoined in important ways. Mm -hmm. 
When you take your Bio 101, you don't learn that. Mm. You may not retain much Bio 101 either. Um, when you would take this reacting class, you would learn a lot of science, different sciences, but you'd also see how science and society are intertwined. Sure. How about uh, kind of a, maybe in the past decade, I think, in higher education, there's been this idea that leadership is the kind of the way the future should be the maybe the most important aspect of uh, higher education. And so there's all these sorts of leadership classes or even majors. I think when I was graduating, I really? made a leadership major. Uh, what? Leadership yeah. major? <laughs> right. What exactly. sort of courses did you take for a leadership major? Well, I didn't, okay. I didn't major in it, but it was, a, it was, they offered them at school. So, and I don't know if they had reacting courses, but maybe if you can, if you can talk about how, how this particular method can maybe well, help foster leadership potentially, or again, it wouldn't have occurred to me at the outset, but when, when they do, when surveys have been done on the important experiences students have in college, many of them involve leadership, running the student newspaper, uh, captaining an athletic team, being a leader of a sorority or fraternity, all these things that this is what they remember. Um, rarely do you associate leadership with the academic experience itself. What happens in the classroom? Why? Because the leader is the instructor. What reacting does is by pushing the instructor to the back of the room and letting these social networks and competitions surface and, and obliging students to run the class, lead their factions, slog their way through these problems, they acquire organically these leadership skills. But more importantly, they, they learn is they, they learn they're part of a team solving problems. And so often the leadership programs say, we're going to teach leadership by giving you the skills of a leader. But the chief skill of a leader, I'm persuaded, and, and a number of scholars in the leadership field, is the chief skill of a leader is to understand the organic connection between yourself and your operation, that the leader is no stronger than the team. So the best way to learn leadership, given this modern perspective on the field, is to be part of teams in difficult problem-solving challenges. There may be moments when you know, a particular person with particular skills needs to ascend to the fore to take charge of things. Um, that may be you, that may not be you, but that's what reacting teaches. It gives you these teams working in problem-solving settings, and students then suddenly realize, hey, this is leadership. I can do this. So we've got, we've got uh, 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 I, in doing this book, I interviewed some students, and uh, uh, I can think of, of two of them. I interviewed them when they just graduated. Uh, Michael Mealhouse was elected to the Bemidji uh, City Council, the youngest council member, and he had learned, he had been uh, shy as a uh, High school student, he doubted that he had leadership potential, but reacting taught him that he did. And then, then it also taught him some things that leadership isn't just about being a leader. It's about connecting with people. So he has these skills. The next thing he knows, he's, he's elected the city council, one of the youngest city council members in the nation. And the reason he says he's ready for work, the reason he had the nerve for doing it was through his reacting experiences. Fantastic. Fantastic. 
Uh, maybe if you can talk about sort of in the classroom, you mentioned you know, it's supposed to go along the line, and maybe not supposed to, but it's sort of set up to go along the lines of history, where it, and even in the book you talk about a lot of times one team is stacked up way against another team, and they're almost set up for failure. Uh, so if you talk about sort of the two different things that are two different parts of the book, but if you can kind of talk about sort of you know why failure might be important for some people, and then going into another direction. Uh, how can you kind of deal with things that go outside of history, or why is it okay to go to, to have maybe a different outcome? Okay, let's take let's take the <laughs> the history question uh, first. Sure. Um, as the games have evolved, we've learned how to design a game so that it stays on the historical tracks mm-hmm. until the end. There has to be freedom for students to to win the game, even though they've got a role that lost historically. If you don't have the capacity to to win, to change history, then you're doing a, re, an, a reenactment. You could, re, you know, we could put you out on the field with with guns and march right. around. You could re, and read a script. This instead puts you in the situation and gives you the freedom and the the subversive thrill. Change history. The problem is, if you change history in the first class, then and you're off the historical tracks, then you're, it's really hard for a game for a game that lasts a month to not just be in Never Neverland the whole time. Right. So, if for example, and we learned not to do this once in the early version of the French Revolution game, there is a possibility for Louis the Sixteenth to escape from his his virtual imprisonment in Paris. Well, when he escapes, then he plots to invade France and and things and you've got the whole game that doesn't is in Never Neverland and the instructors don't know what to do and the students are in a place that's so strange it hasn't been scripted at all. Mm-hmm. So we've learned over the years uh, to design the games in moments that uh, will be stable so that you won't go off the rails but there will be the chance of going off the rails at the very end in the final class so that you, your agency can service. So there are issues of game design that we've learned over the years. There are now probably, uh, I think, 80 teams working on the design of over 130 games. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and we're learning more and more about game design. So part of this process of having a game that isn't often Never Neverland, which is just hard for an instructor to, to cope with, it's hard to design it so that it's a, a, a month-long experience. Um, we've learned how to keep the games on the historical rails, but then have the freedom for invention. That said, um, there are some loser roles. Right. There are some roles which it's uh, very hard historically. Uh, say the the six in India in, ni- in the nineteen forties. Uh, England is is leaving India. What's going to happen to the six? They're just in a horrible situation. It's hard to figure out. They're they're sort of squeezed between the Muslims and the Hindus. Um, they're losing their allies in the British. They don't constitute a majority in any province, including the Punjab. So so they're in a bad place. The players, students playing that game, there's no way really for them to prevail. Do you leave the, the role in? Sure, because you need their voice in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but will they win? Probably not. Mm-hmm. 
what we've learned is that losing a game hurts. That uh, especially when you become invested in it, and this whole pedagogical process entails getting invested in emotion. That's the whole idea, and often you do. But that's not a bad thing. That that the the pain of losing, of being a sick leader, and then st- failing, just as the sick leaders themselves failed to find a homeland for the the six in in in, in historical situation. Failure is not a bad thing. That it's probably, I think, my failures have been my best learning experiences. Um, And that the failure occurs in the context of a game and your fictive identity as a Sikh, for example, or as a uh, Puritan in Massachusetts Bay Colony, um, or an oligarch in ancient Athens, when you lose and you're losing playing a role, it's different than when you get fired from a job or shot down by your uh, boyfriend. It's It's... It's a play world where the, the losing hurts, but it helps give you a lesson in coping and in moving on. Sure. And that's, that's when, when we're hurt, when we lose, we often then think hard about what we should do to do better. Sure. That this loss occurs in this fictive realm, this play world, makes it easier to absorb the pain and also to absorb the message on what to do better down the road. Sure, Absolutely. Uh, so you kind of talk about there's so many different teams and other sort of researchers and scholars trying to create these games. And you have a nice list uh, in the back of the book of, of sort of a, a lot of the games or maybe some of your your favorites. But can you maybe pick out a couple that you thought maybe your most memorable or your most favorite that you can, you can think of? Oh, well, I, 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 I was, I've been involved in the design of a bunch of games and, and played them in the classroom. Um, but the first game, the first game that I played, uh, since I hadn't been involved in the design of it, was Pat Kobe. Pat Kobe is a government professor at Smith College, and he designed this brilliant game on Henry VIII and the Reformation Parliament. And uh, when I had, I'd gone around running workshops with reacting, but always dealing early on, always dealing with games that, that I'd been involved with. Students I took around who had played games and been themselves so brilliant, they then helped in these workshops. They helped faculty with the complexity of the, the roles for a weekend workshop. The, the, the student preceptor said, you know, you keep giving these talks about reacting, but you've never had a role in a reacting game. You don't understand it. So my first experience as a player in a reacting game was with Pat Kobe's game, uh, which is Henry VIII and the Reformation Parliament. And uh, I had the role of Thomas Cromwell, who was the, the, at the heart of the game, trying to run the, uh, the, the British Empire at this moment of nation-state building. And after the first, uh, I, I thought I had read through the material and I thought I knew what I was doing, but uh, just this mass of complexity of problems, of crises, unfolded in the first two hours of this, of this play of the game. And there's this coffee break, these student preceptors come running up to me and they say, how was it? And I said, I'm so confused. (laughs) And they said, now you understand reacting. And what happened to me is what happens to all 
overreacting faculty who reported the experience and racking students is that night, instead of going to the bar and schmoozing with the other faculty, I went to my room to study harder so I wasn't, wouldn't do so badly and be so confused. Mm-hmm. And then I found out later that the other faculty too didn't same. go to the bar because they had the same thing. So we were, though we'd gone to have the, 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 the fun of an academic conference, most of which occurs uh, in, the, in the socializing afterwards, ended up working. Mm-hmm. which is the whole point of reacting. It sucks sure. you into doing work. And I understand uh, Henry VIII and the Reformation Parliament in a deep way that I'll never forget as a result of that experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're kind of coming to the end. Any, any last words that you want our audience to, to know about the book? Well, what, what, is, what is so exciting about this is that, that we've happened upon, when I say we, I say these, these several hundred scholars, this, this new landscape, this new pedagogical landscape. And people are coming up with not only different ideas for games, but different ways to structure the classroom of doing this uh, for classes of 130, of doing it in uh, retirement communities, of doing it in prisons, of, uh, of doing it to promote retention, of doing it to cut down binge drinking on campuses. All sorts of curricular uh, possibilities, all sorts of different games. This is a, the excitement of working with a new paradigm. And as I say, this is a very new paradigm. And the reason it's so new is that it's going against this pedagogical paradigm that goes from Plato to Dewey and beyond. Uh, and they say, don't do this. Well, when you do this, since it hasn't been done in this thick, uh, month-long sort of experiences... There are all sorts of possibilities. We've just begun to scratch at the surface. What happens is when other faculty members join this, and they join it by going to www.varner.edu front slash reacting, or just Google reacting the past, you'll get yourself there. Go to a workshop um, where you can learn a game by playing a brief version of it over the course of a weekend, and then you'll all be sucked into it. you become part of the enterprise, and there will be some aspect of this vast virginal landscape of pedagogical innovation and it's terra nova a chance for real creative thinking and provocative teaching and that's that's what I would say to sure join, join the enterprise absolutely that sounds fantastic and we'll I'll, I'll post a link in the uh, in the article as well um, so any any upcoming projects I know you just finished this and you have a lot of passions but any upcoming projects that you that are on the horizons you know it's just it's, Every, just about every aspect of this of this pedagogical paradigm creates new ideas, and 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 there's so much more to explore connected with this. It's it's intriguing. I'm not going to escape that for uh, a long time. This has deflected me from my usual historian uh, life uh, two two decades ago, and I'm not going back. Partly <laughs> because it's so much fun. Well, it sounds really interesting, and I'm definitely going to check it out, especially Barnard is you know, across the street from me, and I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, check it out after, after hearing the excitement. Well, and there, there are a bunch of campuses in New York City uh, uh, that, that do reacting in, in big ways. Marymount, Pace, mm-hmm. Queens College, Brooklyn College, uh, um, and some other stuff. Absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Mark Carnes for joining us today. I would suggest everyone go and check out his book, Minds on Fire, How Role Immersion Games 
transform college. Uh, so thank you guys for listening, and I hope you learned something. Thank you very much.